You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDETM. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Walter Isaacson has had a long and hugely successful career in broadcast news. He was the managing editor of Time and his former chairman and CEO of CNN. He's also written a number of best-selling biographies, including books about Apple founder Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Henry Kissinger. He now runs the Aspen Institute, a nonpartisan educational and policy think tank in Washington, D.C. He will be a featured speaker at the Mackinac Policy Conference this year, just in a few weeks on Mackinac Island. Uh, Walter Isaacson, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Nice yes. to be on WDT. Yes, thank you very much for uh, for being with us. Uh, I want to start with uh, just uh, your reaction to what we're seeing uh, in the political sphere right now in, in Washington. Uh, I worked in Washington for a time covering the Supreme Court. I know lots of people who've been there a lot longer than I was. I don't think anybody... Uh, has ever seen anything quite like this. And I, I'm asking everyone who's there just to, to tell me what their their reaction is to it. Well, we're, we're, in, we're in totally uncharted waters. And it's mainly a personality thing. I mean, there's not an ideology uh, that's causing the divide. In fact, I think people are looking at Michael Pence and thinking, okay, that would calm things down a bit, <laughs> you know, even though he for Democrats, is a far more conservative and more deeply conservative person than Donald Trump. Uh-huh. I mean, with Trump, it's basically a matter of judgment, character, and uh, just, just the ability to uh, control himself. And I think people are somewhat surprised that he hasn't grown in the office. Yeah. Uh, when you were running CNN, uh, it was a very different era for cable news, for media mm-hmm. generally. Uh, g- give me a, your sense of how the media are handling all of this unusual Yeah, activity. I think the media has played into this a lot, and it's partly because we've become more balkanized and polarized and poisonous in our media. Obviously not a show like yours, but, you know, when, you know, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a sort of general mass media as opposed to being on the blogosphere or on talk radio or cable TV where people went to be reinforced in their own opinions and uh, where people were giving opinions more than trying to give reporting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, If if you were running CNN today, how how differently would you you want to be approaching this? I think there's a hunger in our country today for very straightforward news that tries to be honest and, you know, objective. Obviously, people have trouble at times being objective. You know, you can't always be perfectly objective, but you can wake up every morning and say, I'm going to try to get this right. I'm trying to be a good reporter. And I think that's lacking in our society today because you turn on any station and most uh, radio stations or blogs, and they're out there giving you opinions. So I think I would try to say, okay, we're going to try to be the most reliable and best reported uh, journalistic outlet in the country with no, no, try to put all of our biases aside. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned there that you used to be CEO of and chairman of CNN. Uh, and you were CEO of CNN, I believe, at a time when the Fox uh, cable network 
was finding its footing and, and becoming more popular. Uh, I imagine that, that you would have known Roger Ailes, who founded that network, who died sure. this week. I wonder, I wonder what your thoughts are on his passing. Yeah, I knew Roger, and, you know, Roger and I got along. Uh, but, you know, Roger was somebody who really did have a chip on his shoulder. I, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I meant, you know, he felt <laughs> that there was, as there had been, I mean, there's some truth to this, a media elite, and he wasn't accepted in it. And I think that he played on resentments. He always had some resentments in him, and he knew that a lot of people in this country are resentful, and he was able to tap into that as a political consultant and as a leader of a news network to sort of say, you know, that the establishment is uh, trying to mess you up and uh, and you should be resentful and we're going to play to your resentments. And I think it helped add to the uh, atmosphere of uh, discord in our country. I, uh, you know, I think he would agree with that, that he wanted to uh, shake up the country. And I think there are people who feel that way and that's valid. I just feel that it's gone too far nowadays. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Walter Isaacson, author, journalist, president, and CEO of the Aspen Institute. He is going to be a featured speaker at the Mackinac Policy Conference this year in just a few weeks up on Mackinac Island. Uh, Walter, I'm going to talk about your address on Mackinac. It's going to be about how disruptors and innovators can play a role in Detroit and Michigan's economy going forward. You've spent a lot of time dealing with and thinking about uh, innovators and disruptors, uh, having written books about Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger. These are all sort of disruptive figures, I guess, in our, in our history. And you see what's happening in Detroit, which is really good. You have a new wave of entrepreneurship. And it always seemed to me from Benjamin Franklin when he becomes uh, arrives in Philadelphia as a runaway and starts a small business, a disruptive business, one who creates a printing shop but also ties it in with the postal system, creates a whole network there. It's almost like he's a modern-day Internet entrepreneur. Uh, and you see what happens when small businesses and entrepreneurs – can help revitalize a city. And so I've looked at people like Steve Jobs or uh, Bill Gates or Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg to say, what is it that they do? How are they rebellious? You look at Uber, for example. Uber is, uh, I know, you know, there have been ups and downs in Detroit. Uh, but you look at a company like Uber and say, what's the upside of that disruption? And where are the things where it uh, actually hurts uh, uh, a citizenry? But in the end, this disruption is going to happen if you have a digital age, if uh, people can get the products they want without going through intermediaries. And I try to look at the case stories, not just look at here's a how-to manual, but look at uh, narrative stories about people who've been great, creative, imaginative innovators. Yeah. Uh, that that disruption is often uh, hard for, for people to, to sort of – meet with optimism when it's happening. It's often that uh, I feel like uh, disruptors get more credit in hindsight than they do when they're, when they're disrupting. You know, my book on the innovators, which is a series that starts in 1840 and takes us to the present of disruptive innovation, starts with Ada Lovelace, mm -hmm. who's the daughter of Lord Byron. 
And she's watching as mechanical looms and weaving machines are using punch cards to make fabrics in industrial England in the 1840s. And her father, Lord Byron, is a Luddite. And I mean that literally. (laughs) His only speech in the House of Lords is supporting the followers of Ned Ludd who are smashing these looms because they're disruptive. They're putting, they think, weavers out of work because, you know, it's disrupting the textile industry. But in the end, uh, you have, after about 50 years, 10 times more workers in the textile and fabric industry in England than you had before the mechanical looms came in. So it was disruptive. Certain people lost their jobs, but the whole notion of a fabric and cloth industry, you know, becomes booming in London uh, after 50 years. So we can't say that technology always reduces the total number of jobs. We can just say it's disruptive and people have to be able to adapt to it. And sometimes that's hard. Yeah, it is hard. And and if you think about a city like Detroit, we have for so long thought about uh, the world, our place in the world in a really specific way. Uh, I, I often, often say it's even harder for us as Detroiters to deal with that disruption or to, to imagine that things could be different. I think we may be in That's a why I'm now. so eager to get to Mackinac. I go to Detroit quite a bit and, mm-hmm. you know, admired what the mayor, your mayor, has been trying to do because Detroit is probably the most difficult of all of mm-hmm. these disruptions yeah. because it was so dependent not only on the auto industry but the whole supply chain that dealt with the auto industry. And when you disrupt that, it becomes much harder to bounce back. Uh, It's not as if it's an economy that had many different types of, you know, economic uh, support, such as, you know, it it wasn't as big as my hometown of New Orleans, say, in tourism or in Mm -hmm. port or, you know, uh, exports, that sort of thing. So it was very dependent on manufacturing and the auto industry. And so it's taken a while for Detroit to come back, especially after the inner core of the city got hollowed out. But that's the thing you're seeing both in Detroit and in innovative uh, places around the world, is when creative people come back into the inner core of a city, it's surprising the type of things that can get done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Walter Isaacson, author, journalist, president, and CEO of the Aspen Institute. He'll be a featured speaker at the Mackinac Policy Conference this year, a little later this month and a few weeks on Mackinac Island. We're talking uh, about disruptors and innovators. The theme of his speech on Mackinac will be about how disruptors and innovators can play a role in Detroit's and Michigan's economy moving forward. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313 That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Patrick in Detroit. Patrick, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Mr. Mr. Isaacson. Uh, Very glad to hear you on the line. I'm actually... Uh, a member of the inaugural class of the Health Innovation Fellowship of the Aspen Institute. So, well, congratulations, uh, sir. You must be doing a really great, innovative job. And obviously, health innovation is a field that's growing rapidly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and and in the city of Detroit, we're seeing a, a big resurgence of um, 
innovation in healthcare and technology and, and biotech. And so it's really exciting to see that stuff taking place in Detroit. And uh, I know your my, medical innovation center there is doing quite well too, right? Yes, a- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually at children's hospital and, um, uh, clinic where I'm in the pediatric ICU, but the, the health innovation aspect is really working on, uh, novel techniques to, to better understand blood diseases and diagnose blood diseases, uh, specifically in the context of sickle cell disease, which is a big problem here in Detroit. Sure. Yeah. So, so my, my question for you was, in, in the context of an organization like the, the Aspen Institute, uh, what, what, what unique opportunities do you see for a, a group like ours to change in a, in a place like Detroit in a, in a, in a larger way? Patrick, great question. Thanks very much for the call. Thank you very much. You know, our innovation entrepreneurs at the Aspen Institute, and Patrick is one of them in the health field, they get together with people around the country and who are doing different things. And as I look, I'm happy to be in my hometown of New Orleans right now uh, for this call. I look at the health innovation that's happening here and realize how important it is to get young people who are driving it to understand what's happening in Detroit, to share notes with what's happening in San Francisco or Boston, or for that matter, uh, South Carolina, where our Health Innovators Program first began. And so what we're trying to do is take people from different political parties, different backgrounds, uh, in different fields, like one of them is an education innovation group, another is a health innovation group, and say, if we can get a class of 30 of you together each year from around the country, you share your best practices, you share your best ideas, and then each one of you has to do a project. You have to do a project maybe in partnership with another person on your, in your class of innovators uh, where you pay it forward and say, okay, this will be my project. I'm going to start a healthy eating uh, places in my town for you know kids who don't have access to good food, or I'm going to start a blood testing type thing. Those projects uh, are ways of bonding people together and seeing new ways of doing innovation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Walter Isaacson. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Leonard in Detroit, Jeff and Wayne, Vince in Hamtramck. We will get to you next. Stay with us. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Walter Isaacson, an author, journalist, president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, former chairman and CEO of CNN, author of books about Apple founder Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Henry Kissinger. Uh, Walter Isaacson is going to be a featured speaker at the Mackinac Policy Conference later this month on Mackinac Island. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to uh, Bill in Westland. Bill, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, it's a pleasure to be on your show again, Stephen. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'd like to address a, a, a question to uh, Walter, please. Uh-huh. Um, when you talk about disruptive um, technology and you talked about the, the industry in England and how that disruptive technology was uh, attacked by the Luddites 
because it was going to eliminate jobs, but eventually it created, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. There seems to be a supposition there that, in fact, that's what technology is going to do eventually. My premise is that it, in fact, is not going to do that. There is going to be a continuous erosion of jobs because the bottom line is, in any business, is to reduce cost, and you reduce cost with technology. When you have multinational corporations that trade across the globe, they can trade into countries that don't necessarily have this level of technology, and they can increase their bottom line by being able to do that. So I see a continuous, and this is a long curve I'm talking about, but a continuous erosion of jobs in this country and a distillation of those jobs to very specific, highly technological jobs in the marketplace. So I need some comment on that. Because I right. think there needs to be a fundamental economic change in the country, to tell you the honest yeah. truth. Bill, thank you very much for the call there. Bill, what you've asked is the most important question of our time, which is, will this time be different in terms of technology reducing the total number of jobs we have? Right. Now, the one thing we know from history is that every time there's been a new technological disruption, People worry that it will reduce the number of jobs, but in the end, it increases it. We've already talked about the Industrial Revolution in England increasing the number of jobs. So we have data points from, you know, uh, centuries that say the more productive workers are, and productivity is measured by technology. If you have good technology, workers are more productive. That always leads to a growth in GDP, gross, product, gross domestic product, as then that leads to new jobs being created, jobs you may never have even thought of, like web engine optimizer jobs or something. Now, the question Bill asks, which is a good one, is something that many very smart people, including, say, the economist Larry Summers, would say, yes, but this time it's different. Now, I don't see any evidence yet that it's different. In fact, the number of jobs in our society is higher than it's ever been. Labor participation is growing slightly, although not fast enough to make us totally secure. And this is after 40 years of amazing technological innovation. Mm -hmm. So if the notion that technology would de decrease or eliminate jobs in the long run, we'd all be out of work now because we've had a huge spate of technology coming along. Now, do I, am I absolutely sure that when artificial intelligence machines and all come along, there'll still be jobs? I think there will, and we'll just have to find the jobs that are suited to being more creative. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it is an issue. I'm not going to tell Bill that uh, I know I'm right and that he's wrong. All the evidence so far is if we get a more productive society, we end up creating all sorts of different types of activities and jobs and ways to use the greater product, uh, the greater uh, wealth that we've produced. Uh, and I suspect that will continue, especially if we have a good education systems yeah. so people can be adaptable. Right. That's the thing. I mean, we've got to get people prepared to take advantage of the things. Yeah. I mean, doing. I'll make a point on that, which is every time we've had one of these disruptions, whether it's, you know, the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s and 60s, that's in the middle of our Civil War. And what Abraham Lincoln does is he passes the Morrell Act, which makes land-grant colleges. Mm -hmm. So anybody who wants to can, you know, in states across the country can go to college. 
Likewise, when we had another spurt of this, when the automobile came in uh, around 1900, we created the notion that high school would be universal and free. When my father came out of World War II, uh, the GI Bill increased the amount of education for a new type of industrial society. Nowadays, we're going through another of these changes. It would seem to me we would do an educational change as well, maybe making preschool through grade 14 or preschool through two years of trade school universal and free. But we're not really being as creative as our previous generations were in improving the education system based on changes in technology. Right. Right. Uh, Bill, again, thanks very much for that uh, that riveting question there. Uh, let's go to, quickly to Leonard in Detroit. Leonard, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes. Um, the uh, When Cadillac came to uh, Detroit, he uh, saw that water uh, as a uh, 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 technology and stuff to uh, uh, work the... Um, for, for uh, enterprise and stuff. And Detroit uh, was a manufacturer of over 100 world-class products, and that's why the automobile industry came here. It's kind of funny that they were producing bicycles, ranges, uh, you know, all, all kind of uh, stoves, all kind of things and stuff. In fact, uh, going back to it, we have uh, uh, bicycle shops uh, being uh, developed now in in uh, Detroit, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, Leonard, that's uh, you're absolutely you're absolutely right about that sort of history of disruption here in Detroit, and it, it sort of recycles itself, right? It, it gets reborn uh, every couple of years, and where I think we're in a space now where where that's happening, where where we are sort of rethinking uh, what we're going to be and what we're going to do, and and how everybody uh, will 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 participate in that. Uh, Walter Isaacson, do you have a reaction to what Yeah, no, Stephen, I think that's great, and it's a good point he made. I look at what Shinola is doing there. I look at what Dan Gilbert is doing there. I'm so admiring of Detroit and all of Michigan, because really for 20, 25 years, you've seen the decline, and in the past few years, you've seen, okay, we're actually smart enough to innovate our way out of this. Yeah. Yeah, we'll think we'll think our way out of it, right? <laughs> nah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, but you need a lot of things. You need a good uh, political leadership. I think you got some of that now. I mean, maybe your listeners will disagree, but from afar, we kind of envy you. You got some good people. Likewise, you need a good business leadership. I think Dan Gilbert, as well as the auto companies now, trying to provide civic leadership. You need that. You need a great education system. You don't quite have that yet. You know, I would, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say you'd have got work to do there and on public safety. But that's the way it's happening in a lot of cities around the country is creative people are moving back in. Uh, cities are actually reviving, uh, but they have to deal with things, including education and public safety and a few other things. But maybe we can have thriving urban areas again in this country. I think we're going to. Yeah. All right. Walter Isaacson, journalist, author, president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. We will see you up on Mackinac Island in a few weeks. Thank you, Stephen. I can't wait to see you there. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Uh, That's going to do it for me today. I will be back on Monday. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a public service of Wayne State University. See you next week.